0: When you hear about marketplace businesses, we always hear about how challenging they are to scale and why it's so hard for profitability. Well, in today's episode of The Growth Equation, we got to bring on Blake, who has launched his own marketplace company in the past and really share some of his expertise over the last few years of the challenges within a marketplace business. Where do you start first, demand or supply? What is the rate unit economics? And Why has there been so few marketplaces that have been successful? So we had a really amazing conversation as part of our Growth Equation live series, where we just got to learn more about this topic and really have an in-depth conversation. So for anyone listening, when you're out there thinking, why our marketplace is so so tough, this is a really great episode to listen. So I'm really excited to bring him on. So let's get started. Thanks again for kind of coming on the uh, Growth Equation podcast today. really excited to have you as part of our live video series here. I think it's gonna be a really great conversation. And I I think what would just be a really good starting point for us is just kind of tell some of your background and what you've done. I know you've done a kind of a, a bunch of different things, and I think it'd be great for everyone to hear what those things are.
1: Sure. Well, I guess most recently, for the past five years, I've been running consumer marketplaces. First was as the Canadian country manager for Helpling, which is a the world's largest marketplace for in-home services, connecting household cleaners with homes that want to be cleaned. We at the height of it were operating in 14 countries. I was leading Canada, venture backed, you know, run out of Europe, doing really well. Came out of that saying that there's a a better way to do this in North America, and through that ended up founding um, Horale Home, which was my bootstrapped uh, venture to kind of reinvent the business model um, and make it more of a fast-enabled marketplace to support self-employed home cleaners rather than being the uber of cleaning, which Helpling and many others had tried to be. Oh, take on. Yeah. And prior to that, I was also a consultant, started my career at Deloitte, went independent for a year or so, even started my own sole, sole proprietorship before merging in with a client. And then in between both of those different adventures of you know six years consulting, last five marketplaces, I uh, had uh, done my MBA like here at the University of Toronto, of Management.
0: And, you know, just on some of that background, you know, you've kind of start. you, you mentioned how you were working within consulting and then, you, you know, you kind of found your way into like working within tech industry. And then on top of that, like specifically marketplaces, how did that kind of career journey just happen? Did it just happen naturally or did it, uh, or did it, or did it just happen like almost accidentally?
1: I think everything happens uh, for a reason. Usually it's because you create the reason, but in my case... I you know so I, I was finishing up my software engineering undergrad, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew software development wasn't for me. I'm not I'm not a strong coder. I understand the, the frameworks. I understand how to communicate with technical people. I understand so the concepts of uh, you know the different layers in uh, software development. Uh, and even the underlying infrastructure, but that wasn't me. And so I ended up finding my way over to the technical consulting team within Deloitte that had a very non-technical role, mostly around the strategy, planning, the high-level decision-making for what an organization should do from a technology and specifically a, a security and privacy perspective. But while I was at Deloitte, just about everything that I did for fun were the firm's philanthropic or socially-minded initiatives. So things like United Way or Impact Day, where we went out into the community and volunteered. And I did about 500 hours a year above and beyond my core job doing that stuff. And it's just to a point where I was enjoying that more and wondered what it would look like if I spent more of my time focused on uh, work that created sort of a social good for folks. And so I ended up leaving Deloitte and starting my own uh, consultancy, helping public, private, and nonprofit sector organizations work better together. I had a variety of different clients, uh, mostly in, again, the strategy planning uh, sort of space. But one of the clients I had was the Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, which was a, a national nonprofit uh, member based organization that worked with Canadian companies to advance their corporate social responsibility. And so I uh, leapt at that opportunity, was working with uh, our financial services institutions and some federal crown corps here in Canada, but largely found that CSR is done from a, a risk and reputation management uh, perspective. A lot of good comes from giving money away and helping employees volunteer, but I was much more interested in learning how we could align businesses' profitability with initiatives and projects that created some sort of scalable social good or environmental good. So ultimately, what I ended up doing was saying, well, I want to understand business a bit better if I'm going to go and try to change the way businesses operate. And so that was the, the, the catalyst for going back to business school a little bit later in my career. And uh, quite frankly, it was very lucky that Helpling came around uh, after I had graduated because they had just essentially approached the school and said, is there anyone there that can run a business for us? And so I had contacted uh, them and said I'd be very happy to, to give that a go. We went through a bit of a process, and it turned out it was the, the right fit for both of us. And why I liked HelpLine was because if you think about it, most home cleaners are, you know, middle-aged, English is a second language, low to no education, immigrant women. They're often the price taker in a negotiation and are not necessarily meaning to be exploited or meaning to be walked on. And their customers don't necessarily mean to do that either. But everyone sort of thinks that everyone's going to self-optimize for their own best interest. And often what will happen is a household will offer something and a cleaner will say, okay, because they don't feel comfortable having a conversation to negotiate for their best interest. And so uh, that to me saying, well, if there's a way that we can create a floor for their earning potential and a floor for respecting their time, then there's a lot of opportunity created above it, but at least they're no they, they're unlikely to be taken advantage of. And so that was sort of the journey through to helpling and then seeing how that model could be improved was how a raw home came to be where we really fundamentally changed the, the business model to make it a service that supported the supply side, supported and then helped enhance the livelihood of uh, home
0: cleaners. And then I think just on that, I think it's like a really good, you know, kind of perspective of how you're trying to make like social change and, and, and apply that within like tech innovation. Was it always about like, just like call it the home cleaning industry in general? Was that something that just like attracted you to towards that? And then I guess the second question to that is like, what led into like specifically working within like marketplaces? Was it just like that was the solution? That was the right solution in order to like solve that problem you just identified?
1: Honestly, I think a little bit of it is uh, you work with what you've got. So I found my way into a marketplace and it was like, okay, so I'm here, but what do I do? And I think the other part of it is I have a, a personality that's constantly optimizing. So if I'm presented with a situation, I'm always looking at it saying, how can I make this better? What can I do? Uh, to, to, to make this more efficient or more successful. So in the context of Helpling as a marketplace, I was looking at some of the things that made it work and some of the things that got in its own way and thought, all right, well, how do I, how do I fix that? How do, how do I make that better? I think that when it comes to the social good behind it, it's just a, a inherently part of who I am. But it also was the best way to make this model work. And by that, I mean, what makes a marketplace traditionally successful, of which there are actually, unfortunately, very few good examples, is that they have this virtuous cycle of supply creating demand and demand creating supply. And in the home cleaning space, that doesn't tend to happen because one of the things among several that you look for in a marketplace in terms of like, is this a good business opportunity, is the monogamy or, or playing the field kind of approach in a relationship between the supply and demand. And by that, what I mean is, if it's the sort of thing where the demand and supply don't care if they work together again, but they constantly need one another, so it's non, non-monogamous, um, that's good. But where in the you know in the case of who are you going to let into your home? You don't want like a good proxy for it is Uber, right? So you have well, let's turn it around. How many Uber trips do you would you take say you take in a in a given month?
0: Yeah, I think if we're talking non pandemic, probably yes. would. <laughs> yes, definitely. Let's look at it from a non pandemic perspective. Uh, you know, you could probably say something maybe like once or twice a week could be a good starting.
1: I, yeah. So fifty trips a year, right? Yeah. You know, a minimum. And so if you think about it, in those 50 trips that you've taken in the previous, you know, four years prior to, to COVID-19, uh, how many times did you have the same Uber driver? Couldn't tell you. Right? Probably. Like, yeah, zero. Really unlikely, right? Yeah. And so can you imagine having 50 different cleaners come into your home in a year? Most people can't. Right. The, the the difference here is that we're talking about not just a transaction or a transactional relationship, but we're talking about an enduring relationship. And so that's where uh, it gets tricky for home clean or other marketplaces that are focused on uh, the the nature of the relationship. So maybe it's elder care, taking care of your your mom uh, or or another you know, family member, or maybe it's about child care. So it's your babysitter or or nanny, uh, or maybe it's pet care, right? So this is where you don't want 50 different people over a year or more you know, cycling through. You want to find that one trusted person that you can build a, a trusted relationship and endure. So with the genesis of Coral Home, the idea was let's work across those different trust-based verticals. But you want to first, or certainly in our case, what we needed to do was get really, really good at one vertical first. And so home cleaning, if you think about it in the context of all of them need a tremendous amount of uh, trust, but which one needs the least? Taking care of your mom, taking care of your child, taking care of your dog, or taking care of your toilet? Cleaning is a little bit easier to enter.
0: Yeah, I think that... So then the follow-up question I have to that is like, with call it relationship-based transactions... Do you think you, you think marketplaces get into like a like a tough spot there because they want the same thing over and over? And, and do marketplaces work better if if it, if you don't need that? I guess is the question.
1: Uh, absolutely, they work better if you don't need um, monogamy. Uh, absolutely, marketplaces really thrive when you can have a different supply demand relationship each time. When you can have high frequency, so there's lots of transactions happening over the platform when the transaction itself can be monetized on the platform as opposed to to off the platform. And when the total addressable market is very large, and that matters a lot because often in the marketplace, you're only capturing a very small sliver of the value that's transacted over that platform. So you need there to be a lot of opportunities so the potential for high volume is there so that you can say, we're going to take this tiny little bit of margin on a huge, opportunity. But what's even cooler about marketplaces uh, and then still extends further in terms of like what you want is when you can actually grow the overall opportunity. So if you think about it, Uber didn't just come in and replace the existing taxi drivers. They essentially created a, an industry where anybody can be a taxi driver. So it's creating more supply than there otherwise would have been which then, because they do have a virtuous uh, cycle, are able to create more more demand, and then higher demand will yield more supply. And there's a few other things, uh, but the the, the main one that makes marketplaces really succeed is the the concept of a network effect. And that's where um, you have an increasing value to you as other people use that service as well. And that comes in pretty strong conflict with a marketplace that's built on supporting monogamy. Because if a household gets their cleaner, it doesn't really matter how many other cleaners are on the platform. And so the the value there actually sort of stops at the initiation of that relationship, uh, making it very hard to, to create that virtuous cycle.
0: And then marketplaces is obviously a key hot topic word that everyone likes to use and, and you know we've seen a lot of even marketplaces at scale like not not be as successful when it comes to profitability I guess I guess the question I have is what makes market growing marketplaces so hard
1: I think there there's a number of factors there one of the ones that I see most consistently particularly in people who get excited about the idea of creating a marketplace because like there's actually a, a a really unfortunate belief that because it's so non-capital intensive to start a marketplace, because you know, you're know you not actually holding the inventory, right? You're just connecting buyers and sellers, whether it be of goods and services, acting as this, uh, this middle person. And so you don't have to do anything other than essentially host a website uh, that connects them. So it's like anybody can run a marketplace. However, that's not really true True, because when you run a marketplace, assuming it's a two-sided marketplace, you've got to figure out how do you create enough incentive for the sellers to you know, want to be on this marketplace. And by that, it's essentially how do you make sure they get paid enough to want to do the work that they are going to do or provide the goods and services that they have while at the same time providing enough incentive to the demand side to say, yeah, that's a price point we're willing to pay relative to my other options to get that good or service. And then at the third side of it, you've got to look at yourself saying, I need to figure out how to do this in a way that creates enough efficiency that these both, both these sides don't mind letting me take a little piece of this to make my business worthwhile doing. And then if you have a three-sided marketplace like food delivery, because you have merchants, you have the the delivery people, and then you have the the households purchasing, um, then you've got four businesses you need to optimize for. And that gets really, really complicated because essentially the way this really works is you've got to achieve massive scale in order to be able to take a tiny margin, make enough money to cover your operating costs uh, for existing. And you need to be well enough capitalized to get to that point down the road because you're not, you know, because you're running three businesses or four businesses in one, it takes a lot longer to get to that point of liquidity. So you've got to have enough capital to get to that point, even though you don't need to buy and manage the inventory in your marketplace.
2: Yeah. These have been, you know, fascinating points. Greg and I have talked about marketplaces on and off all the time. For, for years now, and i 've never actually experienced building one myself uh, or have gotten too close to understand the mechanics of it at the ground level, but I have a couple of questions Blake, and, and I guess the simplest one and it 's definitely not i 'm sure a simple answer is if you decide that you know you found a problem where you want to build a marketplace around it, how do you start so hard you 're talking about three sided marketplaces in you know with a two sided marketplace for example. How do you start building that demand and supply side at the same time? It's probably the eternal problem in marketplaces. Where did you start and and how do you recommend people go about that?
1: Yeah. So I think even before you start building supply and demand, because it's going to take a long time. So let's say you do start building supply and demand and you start getting some initial traction and you think you have an opportunity. You may just be walking dead and not realize it. And it may take a couple of years. The thing that I've counseled a few other folks uh, who come you know, to me looking to start something in a marketplace space is to really look at what is the total addressable market? How, how big is the opportunity? And how likely do you think it is that you're going to be able to penetrate that, that market? So, what what share of that are you going to get? And then, what do you think your margin is going to be? Because the unit economics behind this really dictate whether or not this is worthwhile to pursue. And it will help you understand how long do you, you know are you likely to be unprofitable before you get enough volume to be profitable. It also helps you understand how operationally efficient you need to be in terms of being able to reduce the number of touch points between each relationship or transaction in order to be able to effectively scale as opposed to scaling your costs at a commensurate rate with the scaling your, your, your growth. So certainly I think you know, when you're when you're starting out, the best thing to be looking at is how much opportunity am I going to be able to capture and how am I going to be able to capture that? How does that grow? And does that still make it worthwhile for me to do? And if so, do I do that bootstrap or can I do that at a faster pace? That uh, it makes sense to 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 get uh, venture financing or, or run other means of
2: finance that's interesting because it sort of gets into my second question and you now I can imagine bootstrapping a lot of different types of companies, but bootstrapping a marketplace sounds really hard, and correct me if i 'm wrong because and maybe this is just the way we've shifted um, with startups and just the culture of marketplaces and tech companies, but it 's all seemingly about market share and a lot less. About profit, you know, you, you were talking about Uber previously. Greg and I have joked constantly about the profitability of companies like Uber, and they're just focused entirely on market share, market share, market share, getting as much as they can, providing discounts of all kinds, just onboarding as many people as possible. Even if you have a a large TEM and you gather one percent of it or something like that, another organization with a large market share can probably easily take that over because what makes a marketplace ideally powerful, I guess, is is having the supply and the demand. So. How hard or easy is it to bootstrap a marketplace and, and is these days is market share really the, the measure of success for a marketplace company?
1: Okay, so there's a couple different <laughs> thoughts there. So, so one is, yes, bootstrapping is tough, but I think that what it also forces you to do are certain practices that you don't do when you have a lot of resources. And I, I want to come back to that because I want to speak to the the side about you know how, how quickly you can grow and if you go for a venture as opposed to to, to bootstrapping, because that if you do go the venture route, you need to scale quickly because that's what the expectation is, right? The, the, they want to have a return on their money in five to seven years, and with that scale in pursuit of market share, because the idea. The underlying premise with marketplaces is it's a winner-take-all, zero sum. You know, one winner, everyone else. And the reason you do that is because if you don't have enough volume, you're not going to exist. And so the only way to continue to exist is to raise more and more money, so you have the ability to last longer and longer. And. I think what we're seeing in the case of WeWork and to a certain extent in the case of, of Uber and, and Lyft is that that's become a very, very expensive model. Certainly saw it in, in, with Blue Apron in, in the U.S. for box food delivery. And so if, you, if you're the last one standing, then perhaps it will have been worthwhile. But maybe not, or or maybe you won't be able to, to make it that long. And the reason I like bootstrapping is because I think that one of the one of the fundamental problems with growing fast is that the, the conventional wisdom is when you get started, you need to see your supply because sellers are more likely to you know, come to your platform and, and wait because you know what else are they gonna do? You know, they, they're gonna continue to sell their own thing, but if you're essentially saying to them, hey, we're going to bring demand and they're going to buy stuff from you. They see that as like a free channel, so they get signed up. And there are challenges with getting supply on board, but like initially, you want to see your marketplace with supply. And then the conventional wisdom is it's all demand-focused. Let's get the demand, let's get the demand, let's grow, let's grow, let's grow. And where I think that falls apart for a venture-backed business is that when you do that, you disproportionately allocate your team's headspace to how they think about and support demand versus supply. And so, you know, if we think about Lyft and Uber, one of the ways that they differentiated themselves, or rather, Lyft differentiated themselves from Uber was we're just like them, only we're, we care about our drivers, right? And that's been a pretty enduring aspect of their business strategy. And it came about because not what they did, but what Uber didn't, which was, in, in a in a general sense, certainly in the earlier days, not care about their, their their supply side because gaining supply was so easy; it wasn't the hard part for them. The demand was the hard. Part. The focus went to demand, and if you have a longer term perspective, and I recognize it's hard to do that with a startup because you know you might not be around two months from now. You think about. 12 months down the road or or 24 months down the road. But if you do think about it with a a slightly longer term perspective, and you're thinking about, well, where are we going to be down the the road? And so in a relationship-based marketplace, it's all about the supply side, right? Because at the end of the day, if your cleaner says to you, you know, the person you've been working with that you trust that has a key to your house, hey, I don't want to use the raw home or this platform anymore let's just do this directly ourselves. you'll pay a little less, I'll make a little more and this is better for us. The household's going to say yes because the relationship is with the service provider. it's not with the platform or or immaterial, right? In the case of Uber or Lyft or food delivery, you know because it's not a relationship based business, okay we, we don't need to worry about disintermediation where', Supply and demand go off platform because it's really not that easy. But where it becomes tremendously helpful is in the space of public opinion. And so I really do believe that if Uber had fundamentally cared about supporting the supply side and not treating them like a commodity, as and and, I pick on Uber because they're big, uh, but really it's all marketplaces are are really guilty of this where they treat the supply like a where anyone can pick up a rag and clean as long as they have a you wholesome know, ability to move their hand. And that's just not a good feeling for that supply side. And so when they feel like that, what do they do? Well, they start speaking out and they do that very publicly and they start creating court cases. And that's where you start to get into decisions about whether or not their employees are contractors and whether or not they should be paid sick time and benefits. And that screws with your unit economics right? And so I very much believe that if you're not forced to grow for the sake of growing for your investors, but because you're doing this slowly, deliberately, carefully as a bootstrap business, you're doing things for the right long-term reason. And when you do that, you're going to take care of the problems before they become a big problem because you're staying focused on the supply side. I'm not saying don't care about demand. It's just saying that I really, truly believe the key to making a marketplace successful is is skewing towards uh, supporting the supply.
2: That's great. And it's great to have a lean in one direction. I think it, it at least helps provide focus. And one last question on my end, and back to Greg, and it's just about like what the long-term implications of developing a marketplace are on a community or the economy as a whole. I was pretty inspired and when you were mentioning earlier about People who couldn't negotiate rates, for example, or anything like that, like using a marketplace to get better access to better deals for themselves. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty neat, like equalizing force. But at the same time, it really helps people kind of build their businesses and as sole proprietors. But at the same time, when I think about how how a marketplace that might have existed for a couple of years, it gets pretty far to the point where people who are on the supply side, they sometimes seem to turn against the platforms that actually are, are powering them. Those platforms end up having a lot of control, whether it's YouTube controlling, you know, what kind of creative content can be put out, Airbnb with properties or or anything else. Like you, you kind of are at the mercy of a lot of the rules and a lot of the culture and a lot of the processes, especially ones where they aren't relationship-based necessarily that these marketplaces might create. So I'm just wondering, like, what is the long term implication of a marketplace always a positive one are there risks to the economy and just culture or around like small business that that marketplaces can can have
1: it's an interesting question and i think to a certain extent you know we're going to see that unfold with the few of the remaining marketplaces you know covid-19 withstanding, cuz it's it's pretty much decimated a, a lot of the the service based the marketplaces, whether it be Airbnb, Lyft or Uber, certainly from like a, a ride's perspective. The, the food delivery is uh, has done very well and it's what's um, propping them up right now. I think that you know, there, there, there's a few factors at play. So one that comes to mind is when you're on the supply side in a marketplace. Um, you may start out as just being an individual who provides a a service. So maybe you're you're a crafter on Etsy or you're an individual cleaner on Proha. But what we see with marketplaces as they mature and as the supply matures and begins to understand their industry and is able to focus on different things because the platform takes care of other things for them, whether it be the scheduling or whether it be the, the lead generation for them, they begin to be somewhat professionalized. And so you certainly see that in, in the case of Airbnb, where you know an individual host may have made their condo in Toronto available while they went on a, a two-week vacation. But now they're realizing, geez, if I were to rent three more condos or, or buy seven other condos, I can run a small business providing all of the supply and, and that becomes... You know, my job. To a certain extent, I, I do wonder whether or not the platforms themselves actually work against the interests of society when you start to see that kind of professionalization where a platform has not properly considered its impact on society. Short-term rentals, for example. You know, for a home cleaner who is now looking at his or her business and is thinking, "Geez, if I could have four or five cleaners working with me, I uh, essentially train them up and then you know, help spin them out into the community to to work with different households." You know, now we're now we're helping inspire a good small business. In the case of Raw Home, our product wasn't likely to change to support that kind of opportunity. And so what would have ultimately happened with a cleaner who had gone down that path was we would no longer be the right service for them. And so they would have to make the choice as to whether or not to continue on the platform or as an individual or spin out and and truly start their own thing with some of the, the skills and experiences they had learned along the way. And I would like to believe that they would be successful on that path because uh, of the things they've learned and the tools that we've helped them develop. And I would like to think that that would be good for society. But I, I ultimately think that also falls back to the nature of what is the platform or what is that marketplace at its inception? What is it trying to do? You know, I, I, you know I'll pick on Lyft a little, but in their prospectus pre-IPO, one of the like, top line things they said about their business is that they are here to change the world, that they're going to bring accessibility through transport to everybody. And they, you know, they they essentially said, that is our purpose, that is our mission. And I look at that and think, that's really disingenuous. Like you're trying to be as profitable as possible so you can have a strong return to your shareholders. And so it, it's tricky because I with Home, know that my mission is to enhance the livelihoods of house cleaners and to trust, respect and appreciate them. And that's who I am as a as a founder and what I'll do. But then at the same time, you have a company like Juno uh, in New York, which was a rideshare platform, which was uh, very much focused on supporting the driver experience and even uh, tried to come up with a model to provide shares and essentially share in profit share or, or equity share with the drivers. And after a couple of years, had sold to a, uh, a larger company. And when that happened, essentially, they got rid of the 24-hour for the, the drivers they um, ended up not honoring or like massively uh, diminishing the value of the shares that they were having I think like the top payout was like in the hundreds of dollars as opposed to the tens of thousands that they had been bought into this dream and so then you know I look at that and I just I hope people don't think I'm disingenuous or I'm just like Juno. You know, I'm not going to sell out in, in that way but when you think about the impact on society, I and mean, trust is a tricky thing, and it, it, it takes a lot to earn it. And whether or not we're at a place where any company has actually done that and is credible, I'm not sure. I would like to believe, though, that that whether it be Herat Home or other companies, that you know we will see benefits to society. But at the same time, most marketplaces so far have not been built on a model of supporting the supply side, but not truly supporting them.
0: And then I guess, in your opinion, where do you think it's better to be as a marketplace? Is it high transaction volume and call it low average transaction value? Or is it on like, which would be more of like, call it food delivery, the rituals of the world, the Ubers of the world? Or is it more on like low transaction volume, but like high value, which is like more Airbnb?
1: I don't think it's as simple as that. There there are a lot of the fact... like. Among the, there are many factors that make a marketplace attractive, right? So we're talking about the frequency there. We're talking about the the, the take rate. We talked about before the, the monogamy, something I alluded to, but didn't explicitly say was like fragmentation. The more highly fragmented the supply is, the harder it is for demand to find it or to or sift through it. So organizing that in one common place makes it much easier. Uh, but then that also comes down to the, the technology. Right? Does the technology actually make the experience better for the supply or demand side relative to their alternatives? Is it easy for supply to sign up and you know, frictionless? Do You have network effects you create more value by existing rather than not existing for everybody. So, you know, I'm not sure that the equation of high transaction volume and Small margin and its inverse is actually necessarily the the formula. This is a multivariable equation, and you have to really think about what makes the strategy work for you and what you're doing. Like (laughs) outside looking in, investing in a home cleaning marketplace is probably a pretty bad idea. Right, it's uh, you know, like yes, it's super highly fragmented. Like just in the city of Toronto alone, there's more than seventeen thousand self-employed home cleaners and hundreds and hundreds of cleaning companies, you know, that you can find on uh, you know Google or or Yelp. And it then kind of quickly runs out of the good side there because it is monogamous, which means that the relationship matters. It's not all that high frequency. You have your home clean maybe once a week. Uh, twice a week is usually more common, so 26 times a year. Whereas, you know, if you're taking an Uber ride, we're saying 50 something times a year at a minimum. Uh, if you're really growing the opportunity, uh, use Uber to go to your destination, back from your destination, maybe to the two other things that you're doing that day. So, arguably, you can be doing you know 50 trips a, a week. You're not going to have your home clean more than twice a week, right? You'd have to have a massive home for that to be the case. And so, when you think about, well, how do you make this work? How is the, how is the business capitalized? How quickly does it have to grow? What are your expectations for scaling? All of that becomes part of that multi-variable consideration in terms of what you would want to do. In the case of Heron, like our margin was small for the services that we provided. And with a lot more scale, it could have worked. But then you also have the industry dynamic about like how do you actually... Uh, develop more demand, and how do how do you grow that business? And unfortunately, buying demand for home cleaning isn't the same as finding a, a dentist. And it's a function of not sorry. When I say finding a dentist, I'm thinking of like a marketplace like Open Care, where you know they can make four hundred dollars on a transaction, whereas with one cleaning transaction, we're making eight dollars on average, right? So, you know, the, the payback period is very different with those unit economics. And so you're thinking about, well, what can I do in terms of customer acquisition? And when it comes to a home cleaner, though, trust is so much higher. And you know, ultimately, if you if you haven't already made up your mind that you want to have a household cleaner, it's very difficult to convince someone to try that. And if you even give away free cleanings as a means of trying to grow that actually works against you in that trust factor because people are thinking, well, geez, if you're giving it away, what's the quality like? I don't want that in my house, right? And so then it comes down to, okay, well, if you know you want a cleaner, then we have to capture people before they get their cleaner or when they're turning over an existing relationship. Because there have been hundreds of people that I've had a conversation with where I said, here, I'm going to take my wallet out right now. I'll give you $100 cash. If you text your cleaner and tell her you're not going to work with her anymore, you're going to take someone from the internet that Blake introduces me to. I had one smart aleck take me up on that offer. Otherwise, everyone was like, no, I trust this person. They're an extension of my family. They, they, they come to my kids' Christmas party or birthday party. And so then you're looking at this going, okay, so we're only capturing people at that turnover event because the cleaners moved, the cleaners retired, they have moved. Or unfortunately, after a period of time, the relationship just is no longer working. But it's still a super sticky thing, and so you're looking at that, going: Is there enough volume, and can we get enough of that volume to make it work? And that's where you know the economics of it, and really having a good plan for the long term, and having the runway, whether it because of how you're capitalized or just because of the the fortune, you know, how fortunate you are in your personal circumstance to survive a business that grows that slowly. That's where that kind of comes in. And honestly, when it came to draw home. I never really thought it was going to be a billion-dollar business. And I think it could be, you know, tens of millions potentially. But what really mattered to me at its inception was: is this actually going to truly, fundamentally help a segment of people who otherwise are completely socially isolated? Because that's the other challenge of being a home cleaner: is you tend not to know any other home cleaners we work independently, even you know, a taxi drivers no other taxi drivers because while they're waiting for their next fare, they're all queued up at the venue and they're out having a smoke and talking with one another and then, you know, moving out one by one. Home cleaners don't have a place to probably, there is no community. And so that to me was highly important was can I actually support a group that are super hyper fragmented, not just from the demand, but from one another on the supply side as well.
0: And then I think just a couple of last questions we have here is you know as you're focused in, and you're very much in like one specific market and you talk about supply and demand, should you be focused on like being supply led or demand led right where like should you be focused on where potentially like high volume areas of like traffic places are then we should you should find supply around that or you should establish where supply is first and then you can just build the demand around where that supply is
1: so I think that if you are bringing demand to your marketplace and there's nothing for them to access, they're just going to go elsewhere, or have a bad experience and may never come back. And or it's you know, much more expensive to have them come back at, you know, in the future when they're like, no, we promise this time we're ready for you. So it's, you know, as we were saying before, you want to seed your marketplace on the supply side. Continuing with my, you know, let's call it ideology, or way I think that marketplaces would be more successful, is if they really truly do skew towards being more supply-driven. And that I want to be careful that I'm talking sort of like a a 55-45 split, certainly in a transactional relationship, and maybe like a 70-30 split in a relationship-based transaction. It's not to say that demand doesn't matter and that we're not going to try to make the experience as best as possible for demand. But if you think about it more from the perspective of if we do a really, really great job supporting the supply, they're going to do an even better job for the demand. And if we do a really, really good job for the supply, therefore, we're going to do a good job for the demand. Like If you make that your initial orientation of thought, that changes fundamentally how you operate as a business and how you support both your supply and demand side as you try to grow the, um, grow the business and grow their business.
0: I think that's a really great answer. And I think just segue into like probably what like our last question here is talking about a little bit the future of marketplaces. What do you think happens to them? Right? Like I know it was a big hot topic before and, you know, there's been like a pandemic coming in here and you mentioned like how some of them got really, really hurt and got it. What do you think are, you know, and this could be just your hypothesis of like, what do you think are next for marketplaces? Like, did they just cease to exist or... It's only the top that survive. Like, what would be your your kind of bet there?
1: Well, yeah. So uh, I guess there's a couple thoughts there. So one is, yeah, COVID has had a, a very significant effect on almost all marketplaces. In some cases, it's worked really, really well. Like, look at Shopify; they're they're through the roof. You know, Uber Eats has done tremendously well, but rides has been uh, you know substantially damaged. Heron Home, as you would imagine, in home house cleaning, was decimated. Unfortunately, the cost didn't change and the revenue was practically zero for many, many months. And it's not looking like it's going to recover at a rate quickly enough to make it worthwhile to continue to incur those costs under the way in which I was capitalized. In the future, perhaps that will make sense because I do think that we're a long way away from having self-cleaning homes or, or robots that do that for us. And we're still going to rely on people we trust to help us uh, do that kind of work. You know, we'll, we'll see where that is in the future, and, and revisit that. In the context of marketplaces overall, I don't think they're they're going anywhere. If you think about it, you know, arguably one of the most successful marketplaces that has been created in the last you know thirty years is the credit card networks, of which we've got Visa, Mastercard, and Amex. Right, they're connecting merchants and buyers, right? And so uh, I don't see that business going anywhere. And we don't typically think of a business like that as a marketplace. You know, I saw Raul's eyes kind of go home. Right? Credit cards, uh, because we are thinking of Airbnb and Uber and these other like new startups. But there are marketplaces that have been around for for twenty years. Look okay. at Amazon. You know, Amazon is through the roof right? So it really is a function of uh, what kind of characteristics make your marketplace, whether it be that, you know, the, the, the fragmentation, the monogamy, high frequency, the total addressable market, you know, all of those factors, network effects, especially network effects. If you've got a network effect, that's going to make your business much, much more likely to succeed. It also makes it more attractive for another player to come in and then you're in this race of capitalization and who's got enough money to to last. But at the end of the day, I don't think that we're going to see marketplaces like Uber or Airbnb disappear because of, you know, they've spent too much because at the end of the day, there's going to be someone in that category that does survive. It's going to be more a function of how well have they worked with regulators to be able to get acceptance for their business model, and or how, how willing to change were they, uh, when it comes to their own business model, to be able to work within a regulatory environment that allows them to sustain themselves for the long. Run.
0: Amazing, amazing! I, I love that. I uh, love that answer here. And I think as we come to the end of our podcast here, I think you know, we've had a, like a really kind of amazing episode. I think we Rebel and I both enjoyed like just your perspective. I felt like I got. I I got to listen to like a lecture on marketplaces and really seeing like some really strong like ideology and theory behind it that I don't hear like uh, here enough. So I think it would just be, last question we usually ask all of our guests is like, you know, if someone's listening to this and they just want to learn more based on all of your insights, like how how can they come in contact with you?
1: Best way to reach out to me is probably by LinkedIn (laughs) and include a note because I I try to keep my LinkedIn to be a true representation of my own personal network that I can rely on and, and reach out to. So if you're looking to connect with me, let's know why and, and make it meaningful.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think with this has just been a super insightful conversation. I know Raul and I probably feel the exact same way. It was just, this is really awesome. Cool. So. Well,
1: thank you so much.